going to spend today and next Sunday and then Christmas Eve. We can't meet here because we are in a school building on Christmas Day, so we will meet on Christmas Eve. And so for today and next Sunday and Christmas Eve, we will focus our attention on the first advent of Jesus. We won't be able to deal, of course, with every verse that we find in these three chapters, but I do want to tell you the story that is recorded here, and I want us to discern from these three chapters the message that God sent through his prophet Isaiah, given to ancient Judah, and I want us to be careful to draw connections between their experience and ours. And though at first glance, at first blush, it may seem like they were unique to ancient Judah's experience, that in fact is not the case. You are familiar with the cliché that there is nothing new under the sun. And that, my friends, is true. Ever since the beginning, the fall of humanity, that has been the case. Humans have been sinful, and they have made sinful choices. And so, therefore, it is no great surprise that humans would choose to do things that would be in opposition to the will of God. And yet, at the same time, because of the grace of God, we know that He is active in seeking to redeem lost humanity and to make all things new. And so, as we look into Isaiah chapters 7 through 9, we will find these major themes that humans are sinful and humans make sinful choices. And yet God's grace pervades and He seeks to undo that which has been broken, to set aright that which is unjust, to shower His good and kind grace on those who don't deserve it. And that, of course, is why it is grace. So what we're going to do now at the beginning is I'm going to read chapter 7 and part of chapter 8. I want you to resist the temptation of doing what you often do whenever you hit the prophets. So here's what I mean. Maybe you have this year gone through a yearly Bible reading plan of some sort, and you made it through Genesis because those stories are relatively familiar, and there's a lot of action in there and intrigue, and you made it through like the first 20 chapters of Exodus, and you got up to the Ten Commandments, and that got a little intimidating, and then you got to like Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and that all got a little bit confusing, but then you got into some more historical stuff, and there was a lot of battles and God's power on display, and then eventually you get to the Psalms, and all those seemed like the same thing, and the Proverbs were incredibly boring, and then you get to the prophets, and you have no idea what they're talking about. Well, maybe that's the case. I want to try to clarify what the prophets are about today. Before I read, I want to give you a basic broad outline of how all the prophets write. The prophets write about basically four major things. God is great, number one. God is great, God is holy. Number two, second major theme, humans in particular, God's covenant people, the ones who should respond to Him in faithfulness and thankfulness, they don't. They are by and large characterized by unfaithfulness. So number one, God is holy and great. Number two, humans, even God's covenant people are sinful. Number three, because of humanity's sinfulness, and in particular, God's covenant people's sinfulness, God will judge sin. He must do this because God is holy. But He also does this because He loves His people, which brings us to the fourth major theme of the prophets, 
And that is that God will rescue His people. He will keep His eternal promises to His people to rescue them from their sin and to bring them back into fellowship with Himself. Those are the four major themes of the prophets. And we will essentially see those as we read today. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So here's the idea, because I want to clarify this as we go through. By this time, Israel had been split in two. You had the southern kingdom, Judah. You have the northern kingdom, often called Ephraim, which was the dominant tribe of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, and Syria, its close neighbor, were petrified that the kingdom of Assyria, which was further away and was dominant in that day, was going to come into their land and tear it apart and claim it for itself. They wanted to force the southern kingdom, Judah, into an alliance with them. So it would be like this. Syria, northern kingdom, southern kingdom against Assyria. And they thought that in doing so, they would be able to fortify their cities and drive the Assyrians out. So Pekah and Rezin, these kings of these two kingdoms north of Judah, were seeking to force Judah into an alliance with them. The Lord says to Isaiah in verse 3, Go out to meet Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, was tempted to go into an alliance with Assyria, as we will find in a few moments, because he did not want to submit to Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, trying to stand against them because they were threatening him, he seeks to come into an alliance with Assyria, the ones that the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria themselves feared. What this demonstrates is that Ahaz was trusting what he could see. He was seeking to manipulate his circumstances under his own power. The end of verse 9 is very significant for this section. Look back with me. God says through Isaiah to Ahaz, the king of Judah, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That is to say, if you don't trust that I am your God and I will protect you from all foreign invaders, your entire life will be lived in anxious fear And of course, by implication, you will make awful decisions in making alliances with other kingdoms, which will diminish your affection and your trust in me. 
the Lord, again in verse 10, speaks to Ahaz through, through Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. It will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and in all the thorn bushes and in all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head, and the hair of the feet. It will sweep away the beard also. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. Because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. And that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Look with me in verse 5 of chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against him the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. And God bless to us the reading of his word. I want to recast for you one more time what's essentially going on here historically so that we understand as we approach the text. This is the 8th century B.C., by this time, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had split. The king of the southern kingdom, Ahaz, was being threatened by the northern king of the northern kingdom and the king of the land of Syria to join in an alliance with them to stand against Assyria. Ahaz works some back-channel deals. He doesn't want to be in alliance with the northern kingdom or with Syria. And so he takes, as we find elsewhere in these chapters, gold from the very temple offers it to the king of Assyria and says to him, we want to be in alliance with you and we want you to come in and conquer the northern kingdom in Syria and don't threaten us. God promises Ahaz that if he will trust him, that he will be his protector. He doesn't need to trust in a foreign king. But Ahaz has already worked this backdoor deal and though God offers him a sign, Ahaz can ask for it. To trust God and to allow God to prove himself, Ahaz, in some sort of false humility, 
controlled by a lot of fear in his heart, refuses to do so. And God tells him that nevertheless, he's going to send a sign anyway, a sign that he is for this southern kingdom, the land of Judah, and he will always keep his promises to them. This text indicates to us that eventually Assyria would enter in in some kind of alliance with Judah, and it would sweep away the power of Syria, and it would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. This is probably around 735-ish B.C. when this happens. Within a couple of years, Assyria would do just that. They would come in with their mighty army, and they would sweep away all the power of Syria and the northern kingdom. By 722 B.C., about 13 years later, they would conquer the very capital of the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, ever since 2,700 years or so, has never been the same. Eventually, Assyria, because there were consequences to Ahaz's alliance with him, would sweep down into the southern portion of the kingdom. And though Judah would be spared in some senses, eventually, by 612 B.C., the Babylonians would come in and take over Judah, and many of the elite would be deported. This is a tumultuous time in Israel's history. The great kings of Israel, by and large, were gone by this point. Israel lived in constant fear of everything around them. It seemed like everyone was stronger than them. It seemed like there were many legitimate reasons to be petrified of their circumstances. Even those that were at one time their close family members, the northern kingdom. After all, this all came from Jacob's family, 12 sons and 12 tribes. These were their kinsmen. They were deeply petrified of them as well. And Ahaz becomes a pragmatist. Ahaz feared everything around him, and it was clear to the populace as well, to those he ruled over, that things were not well. There was no tranquility to be found in their environment. And herein lies the connection to our day and age. We are surrounded by trouble, trouble within trouble without. Let me define those two categories. Trouble within. There are lots of things inside of us, down in our hearts, in our minds, the things that we think about, so our affections and our thoughts, that we don't really like. And often, second category, these are affected by the things around us, people, circumstances. When you combine these two categories, these two elements, it's a it's a recipe for anxiety, for anxious living. There are a few people among us who I think basically lead carefree lives. That might characterize a small handful of you today. But by and large, in one way or another, we are struck with the notion that things just aren't right. And because inside of us we are unsettled, because of us we because of what's going on inside us, we struggle to deal with our circumstances. And that's what's going on with Ahaz here. Ahaz, you have to imagine, cared for his people. You also have to imagine that Ahaz cared for his position. And he did not want any of that to be threatened. And yet, because his near kinsmen, the northern kingdom in Syria, their near neighbor, threatened to come in and displace them if they didn't come into an alliance with them, he seeks outside help. 
And God is greatly offended by this. If you look back at Israel's history, Israel had always been the minority. If you think about it, God called one man out of pure paganism to himself. Abraham was not seeking for God. God sought Abraham and made him incredible promises that he would grow his family into a nation and thereby bless the whole world. But as you look at Israel's history, they seem to always be weak. They go into the land of Egypt to be protected from the famine in the land of Canaan. There's about 70 of them. And they dwell in the land of great power, but God gives them favor. By the end of the book of Genesis, that's how you find them. They're, they're living under the favor of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The by the time you get to the book of Exodus, they have turned into a large company of slaves. They are abused. They are marginalized. And it doesn't look at all like God has kept His promises to Abraham. It, it looks like those 400 years of interval were, were a great failure. But God sends a prophet, a leader that he had been training in the obscurity of the wilderness, back to Egypt, one of their own, named Moses, to lead them out. But it wasn't as though Moses led a secret coup. He didn't arm them with swords hidden under hay bales. He didn't take them out in the dark of night and teach them how to fight. God sent sovereign plagues from heaven to demonstrate His power and to convince the Egyptians to let them go. And even after having done so, they are pursued to the great Red Sea, at which point God parts the waters in miraculous power, allowing His people to go out on dry land. And after having done so, Pharaoh's army following, they are crushed under the weight of the sea and drowned. Then Israel's sent into the wilderness, and they are told by God that they will be able to take over this land of Canaan. But if you remember, they send spies into the land, and they fear the power and the size of the people, and they doubt God, and then God punishes that first nation, that first generation of the nation, and does not allow them to enter in, Moses included. And they go under Joshua's leadership, and they conquer cities that they don't really fight for, cities that they just march around and walls fall down. And God shows again and again that He will fight for His people. Despite their obscurity, despite their lack of military expertise, despite their great fear, despite their insignificance, despite their frailty, God is their resource. He is the one to whom they should be aligned. But this disease of, of doubt continues, the disease that existed in Abraham and his son Jacob that, that led them to... to justify sinful means of dealing with it, the, the things that you see earlier on in Israel's history under David's leadership and Solomon's leadership and, and thereby later on, it continues. Ahaz is, is like his forefathers. Ahaz looks inside and sees weakness and inability. Ahaz looks around him and sees danger. And this leads Ahaz to, to justify sinful measures to deal with what's going on around him. And again, that, if we're being honest, is, is how we live so often. It can be a struggle with money. 
thin resources, lack of feeling like we have enough. And we can justify sinful means of dealing with that. Often it's more subtle than that. It's sort of a nagging feeling that things aren't just right. It's the notion that that we're not really that happy, that we're not really at peace, that happiness and, and peacefulness eludes us, it escapes us. And if we're being honest, often we turn to unjustifiable means that we do justify to, to satisfy those longings. It can be greed, it can be lust, it can be, frankly, a, a whole host of things. But it's a demonstration that we don't trust God. It's a demonstration that we are often overcome by our circumstances. And because our hearts are frail and because we are not infinite, we often justify the means of satisfying those longings, of putting down those fears. And that's exactly what Ahaz did. And God's great kindness, He knew Ahaz was doing this. And that's why He sent Isaiah to him. And says again, back in chapter 7, verse 11, ask me a sign and I'll give it to you. But Ahaz is so gripped by his pride and by his fear and by his unwillingness to look to the one true God that he says, I'm not going to do that. And some sort of sense of, of false piety. But God says, I'm going to send you a sign anyway. I'm going to send a virgin and through the virgin, I'm going to give her a son. And the name of that son coming from the virgin, his name will be Emmanuel, which means, as most of us know, God with us. This is a, a tricky section of Scripture in many ways, and I will not get down in the weeds in this because we would be here for hours, and I'm afraid we would walk out with our brains in knots and still not understand it. Scholars differ over whether or not this had an initial fulfillment or not, or whether it merely points forward to the coming of Christ, which we will talk about in a few moments. Some scholars believe that this is purely a future promise, that one day God would come to be with His people and the person of Jesus, and He would drive out fear. He would remove our divided hearts and replace them with hearts that trust God entirely, a heart much unlike Ahaz. Other scholars believe that in some sense this prophecy had some kind of initial fulfillment. Though we will not take time to read the beginning of chapter 8, it seems like perhaps this is a reference to a son that actually came from Isaiah and his wife. That's tricky though because Isaiah's wife was not a virgin and the word that is used here and Isaiah chapter 7, 14 exclusively refers to an unmarried woman who has not yet had sexual relations. So how can that be? It's probably the case that in some sense there was a boy born in some way, which provided a sign to Ahaz, perhaps somebody that he knew well, a son that came from a woman that he knew well, which reminded him of God's faithful presence and keeping of His promises to Israel. But regardless, whether this had some sort of initial fulfillment or not, in other words, whether there was some kind of boy born in Ahaz's day, which reminded him and his people of the goodness and presence of God, no son that could have been born could have been born of a 
woman that had not yet had sexual relations with her husband, and no son could have fulfilled this great promise. No son could actually be God with them. That did not happen in their day. So whether this had some sort of initial fulfillment or not, it did point forward to the greater reality that one day there would come a boy born of woman who in fact was God with them. I say to you first of all today that our world is full of trouble and we are prone to deal with it in sinful ways. But I say to you secondly that Jesus came to dwell with us that we might be renewed to God and rest in His peace. Turn with me now please to Isaiah chapter 9. At the end of chapter 8, the consequence of Assyria coming into Syria and the northern kingdom and eventually even sweeping into portions of the southern kingdom is that the people of the land dwelt in darkness. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Trouble was all around them. But chapter 9, verse 1 There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he who brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's the northern portion of the northern kingdom of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ahaz in the southern kingdom lived in dread fear of their circumstances. And again, the connections to us are pretty easy to make if we take time to ponder. I suspect that many of you are here today and you feel trouble. Trouble within and trouble without. Sick children. Perhaps you are ill. Some of you worry about the bottom line of your budget and of your company's budget. Some of you, as you look at the fabric of your relationships and your marriage, with your moms and dads, with your children, with your friends, with your colleagues, they are brittle, they are fragile. A lot of you, if you're being honest, know that you just don't measure up to the trouble that's around you. And it's easy in times like this to curl up into a metaphorical ball and try to escape from the world, or perhaps even worse, justify sinful behaviors in dealing with it. It could be substances. It could be working too much. 
that could be crawling inside your own little world trying to shut out everyone and everything, seeking with tunnel vision to just deal with the treacherous road which lies in front of you, full of darkness and fear. That was Ahaz. That was ancient Judah. And if we're being honest, there were real fears around them. They weren't just imagined. The northern kingdom and Syria and League, that was real fear. That was a real danger. And the problem of Assyria, that was a real danger. Ahaz's kingdom was, was really not up to the task. They, they really were, in some ways, at death's door. So what do we do in those moments? Well, often like Ahaz, we justify sinful decisions to, to deal with those things, to remedy our problems. But as we've said in the great themes of the prophets, though God is great, humanity is sinful. Because of this, God will punish sin. That is one of the things that He's doing in this section. He is, he is punishing evil people, particularly the northern kingdom and the people of Syria. They had turned against God. God was punishing them. But there's a sense to which, of course, the southern kingdom was sinful as well, and they would deal with that sin both in this period and later on. But the fourth theme of the prophets that we've talked about today, the theme of hope, frankly, the theme that shines above the others, the one that is highlighted against the backdrop of human sinfulness and impending judgment, is God's grace, His promises. And if you think about it, in the midst of Judah's treachery, in the midst of their abandoning their trust in the one true God, who had always proven Himself faithful, God comes again and makes a promise. And the promise is that He will come in the person of His Son and be with His people. And brothers and sisters, that's what chapter 9 these first seven verses are about, that God will keep His promises despite our sinfulness. And that's the wonder of Advent, that despite the brokenness of this world, a world that is full of danger, a world that is full of brokenness and fragility, and we all know this, We've seen this when our parents' relationships were torn into. We've seen this when we've experienced abuse at the hand of others. We've seen this when our dreams get dashed against the rocks. We know this whenever we're 40, 50, and 60, and our lives just didn't turn out the way that we had once hoped. We fear this when we're alone, and all the music is turned down, and all the voices are gone, and we're just with ourselves, and we look inside, and we don't like what we see. We know this world is broken. And yet the wonder of grace, this highlighted fourth theme of the prophets, the one that shines above all the others, is that God steps into the darkness, and not merely theoretically. He doesn't make promises with no substance. He will come Himself. And therefore, this promise that a boy would come, born of a virgin, miraculous, freed from human sinfulness, the second Adam, yet not possessing the sins of Adam, this is in keeping with the very first promise that God gave the very first sinners. You see, the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal coming home 
and the father running to the prodigal and clothing him and giving him a feast. The reason Jesus could tell the story of the prodigal, shocking as it was, is because God had always been pursuing prodigals. When Adam and Eve were found in the nakedness of their sin, hiding from God, embarrassed in front of each other, God showed up. And like the prophets, spoke words of cursing against sin, because God must punish sin. But it wasn't merely because He was angry with their sin, it was because He loved them so much and He wanted to drive out their sin to bring them back to Himself. So He slays an animal and clothes them in in the clothing of, of that animal prophesying that one day one would come and lay down his life. And specifically, a seed of the woman would be born who would crush the head of the serpent. And he himself would not only be a conqueror, he would atone for their sins. And so when God promises Ahaz through the lips of Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 7, that Emmanuel would come, that God would come be with his people, it shouldn't have been a shock. Because God had always done that for His people. He had always been pursuing sinners. And Jesus Himself was the literal personification of God keeping His promises to His people that despite the treachery of the world around them and despite the brokenness that was inside of them, He would come to be with them. If we're being honest... This kind of grace, shown to us in the first advent of Jesus, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. After all, why would God step into our brokenness? Why would He get down in the mess? Why would He come after people who don't even want Him? Because no one seeks for God. We hate God. We are the enemies of God. Why would He do that? My friends, the gospel is not about fairness. The gospel is not really about justice. The gospel is about that fourth highlighted theme of Isaiah's prophecy, that God is gracious. And that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus came into a world characterized by darkness, but he came in and he brought the light. And he did this from Galilee. We see in chapter 9, verse 1, that that that's where the light would come from. And that's where Jesus grew up. And though Assyria came in, conquering from the north, bringing darkness into the place that once experienced the light of God's grace, Jesus would come about 700 years later, seven centuries bringing light once again into the darkness. And on them, He would shine His light. Verse 3, He would give them joy again. Verse 4, He would throw off their oppressors. Verse 5, where all the oppressors came in and brought a bloody battle against the people, conquering them, Jesus would turn that around. Because to the people of Israel, He would be born. He would be the sign fulfilled. And the government would be upon His shoulder. He would not be like Ahaz. Ahaz who had a divided heart. Ahaz who justified sinful alliances. 
This one who would come, this Emmanuel God with us, he would never live like that. He has four titles here we find in verse 6. First, he's wonderful counselor. The idea here is that he is the counselor from heaven. He is the one who never gives bad advice. But that sounds like modern secular psychology. The idea is much more, he will never make foolish decisions, and every leadership decision he will make will always be for the benefit of his people. Most of us long for leadership like that. Most of us have never really fully experienced it. Whether it's in our marriages, our homes, in our churches, in our government. Every four years as a country, we look for a leader who can lead us well, one we can trust. And, and even if we get what we want or if we don't get what we want, we always, we always come up short. Because no one can lead us like that. Every human counselor is, is fraught with sin and, and short-sightedness and, and their own pride and their own prejudices. But Jesus would come and He would be the counselor from heaven who would be perfectly wise and perfectly good. And, and you see, that's why every human counselor, even the best of them, fail in one way or another because they're not perfectly wise. They don't know everything. And they're not perfectly good. Their hearts are divided, even the best of them. But what if one could come who, who knew everything? Past, present, and future. And what if that one who knew past, present, and future was also mighty God? This second title given here in Isaiah 9-6. What if nothing was too hard for him? And what if third title, Everlasting Father, He was also really good. This is not saying that Jesus and the Father are the same person. Though they share equal authority and though they share equal nature, they're both really God. The Son of God and the Father are, are separate persons in the Godhead. But yet in some senses, Jesus is a Father to His people. He's one who cares for them well who has His children on His mind, who, who always will lead His people in, in a good and kind and generous way. Think of these three titles together. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, knows past, present, and future. He's the most powerful being in the universe, and He's good and cares for His people as a perfect leader. Ahaz could never be that. The best king of Israel was never that. Pick your favorite president of our union. He was never that. But Jesus was. And Jesus is. And Jesus will be. Which leads us to this fourth title. He is the Prince of Peace. Because He knows all things, past, present, and future. Because He controls all things for His glory and the good destiny of His people. And because He is a kind and generous leader, what is the result? His reign over His people, His rule over His subjects will be characterized by eternal peace. Verse 7, once again. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Think about that. This means that for eternity, our experience under his rule will get better and better and better and better. In some senses, we are already experiencing this. If you're 40, I am, and you're walking with Jesus, for most of us, it's better than when we were 30. It's better than whenever we were 20. And God willing, it'll be better when we're 50. There's a sense to which we have learned over the decades to to trust Jesus more and more. And yet, there's still a lot of things we see in ourselves that that aren't quite right. And if we're being honest, we we deal with the anxiety of, of our hearts responding to the situations around us, and often we just live in kind of a freaked out mode. If we're really being honest with people that we trust, we would admit that we're scared a lot of the time. We long for a day when when things are better every new day, when, whenever we don't struggle with the anxiety, when, when in fact the circumstances around us don't lead us to deal with our anxiety because all things around us are good and, and we ourselves are good. And that's coming. If you think about it, the fulfillment of this promise to Judah, God's people, was not finally fulfilled for seven centuries. They had to wait a really long time for the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, that Emmanuel would come, that God would be with them. Most of us, whenever we struggle with our difficult circumstances, freak out if it's more than seven minutes. We struggle when it's seven days, or weeks, or years. One of the hardest things about the dangers and trials that we find around us is that sometimes they're really long and they seem interminable without end. But God works on a timetable that is not quite our own, which is why, despite the fact that we are not who we were, thank God, despite the fact that that over time, by and large, we learn to trust Him more, to reflexively, intuitively, instinctively turn to Him when trials come. We wait with eager expectation when our lives will be characterized by perfect peace. But the future hope of total restoration, when the Prince of Peace will once again be literally among us, and we can see Him with our eyes, and we will live under His kind, good rule. We wait, and we hang on. The second advent of Jesus is just as sure as His first advent. In fact, some of the promises that we find here in Isaiah chapter 9, we haven't quite seen ultimately yet. We don't feel sometimes that every day is getting better and better. Sometimes we're so scared of tomorrow that we're having a hard time even dealing with today, let alone 5, 10, 15 years into the future. But one of the implications of this text is that because this highlighted theme of grace shines off the page, especially against the backdrop of human sinfulness and the troubles of this world, 
is that God has always kept his promises and always will. The 700 years of history after this initial promise to Ahaz were not characterized by eager expectation in Israel. People didn't keep looking to him saying, when are you going to keep your promise of Emmanuel? When are you going to show your faithfulness? And while we wait, we'll be faithful. That's not the case. If it had been the case when Jesus came unto his own, they would have received him gladly, and they did not. They forgot, and they turned inward once again. And therein lies danger for us. While we wait for Jesus to come and establish perfect peace in this earth, it's hard to wait, isn't it? We struggle. It's hard to deal with our own sin, let alone the sins of others. Think about it. Ahaz was dealing with the ramifications, the ripple effects of the sins of other kings. And though it does not justify the decisions he made to come into allegiance with Assyria, it does make sense. And there's a lesson for us there. We struggle not only with our own sin, we struggle with the sins of others. But because of the first advent that Jesus did come, we can hang on and wait for His second coming when everything will be made perfectly right. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. These are verses that you are well familiar with, but they are the fulfillment of what we find in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made Him known. I actually have the wrong verses on the screen in front of you. I want to read verses 14 through 18. This Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made Him known. What's John saying here? John's saying that Jesus is Emmanuel. The God that we fear, the God that we wish would show up, the God who would deal with all of our problems and the problems of other people, He has come now in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel is with us. He has, he has spent His time with us. He has dwelt with us. He is God with His people. Come with me, please, to... Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was the virgin promised in Isaiah 7. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth, he clarifies that this is finally, seven centuries later, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to take care of the dangers within and the dangers without, to take care of our sin and the sin of the world and to cause us to dwell with Him in perfect peace. Our world is full of trouble and we are prone to deal with it in sinful ways. It's no mistake that though this is to be the happiest time of year, it is also for many the most depressing time of the year. As they look inside and they see that they don't measure up, as they look around them and find themselves to have been abandoned by those around them, this is not only the happiest time of year, it is for many the most sad. And, and therein lies the human existence, right? We want to be happy and there are many reasons why we could and should be and yet as we examine the world with mature, experienced eyes, we find it often to be anything but. And yet, that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to dwell with us, that we might be renewed to God and rest in His peace. And so, while that fullness has not yet been completely realized, we await it with eager expectation. How do we respond to this text as we walk away so that it's not just mere information? I think, first of all, we have to be people of repentance. People who recognize our tendency to trust in inferior things, whether they be good or bad, to give ourselves peace. So, take a deep look inside today. When trouble comes, and if you're not in it yet, it's coming soon. Where do you instinctively, reflexively turn? That says a lot about who your Messiah is. And if you are tending, if it is your pattern to turn to sinful things, to justify sinful remedies, to deal with your problems and the problems of those around you that affect you, repent. Admit it for what it is and turn to Jesus. So I think that's the first implication. We are to be a people of, of introspection, but a people who look objectively to Jesus and turn to Him. I think the second implication is that, that we must, as I said to you last week as we, offended, as we ended Ephesians chapter 1, we must constantly be looking to Jesus. Repentance will be empty. It will, it will turn inward. It will be, it'll be more like, like doing penance if we don't look to Jesus. Repentance and penance are not the same thing. Penance is trying to earn favor with God by perhaps abusing yourself, by trying to buy Him off. Real repentance is confessing our sin for what it is, but turning to Jesus as the remedy, which is why you must continue to be turning to Him. He is your wonderful counselor. He is your mighty God. He is your Prince of Peace. He's the one to whom you must look, but you must know Him. So we must be a people of repentance firstly. Secondly, we must be a people that are constantly reflecting upon the person and work of Jesus, God with us, 
And thirdly, and lastly for today, we've got to hang on. We are called to perseverance throughout the Scriptures. And we do that together. And therefore, this has corporate implications. You will not make it on your own. God did not design you that way. We are called to to live this out together, which means that you have to talk to each other. You have to spend time together. You have to pray for each other. And so I say to you to take stock. I don't say this to make you feel guilty. I say this because I want you to have fullness of joy. And if you really love your brothers and sisters, you want them to have fullness of joy. So will you endure together? Will you persevere together until the second advent of Jesus? When the increase of His government will have no end and we dwell with Him every day looking forward to better and better days ahead, will you hang on together? Will you tell each other what's true in love? Will you prefer each other? Will you sacrifice for each other? How are you doing in that regard? And so I say to you, hang on to the body. Is it hard to do that? Of course it is. Because you're dealing with people that are also sinful. Is it easy to get bored with the same people year after year? Yes, I know. Is it hard to deal with frustrating people? Yes, it is. But you need people, even the weird ones, to help you along the way, to help you repent, first implication, to help you look to Jesus, second implication. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our Prince of Peace. And one day, He'll establish His kingdom and there'll be no more problems, no more sin, no more anxiety, no more trouble. I long for that day because if I'm anything, I'm an anxious person. I want that desperately. But the nagging notion that things aren't right is an idea that one day it's coming. And until it comes, let's hang on together and let's wait. And then fourth implication as we close. Go tell other people. Even if people look happy around you and their nice scarves and perfect puffer jackets and expensive leather boots, they're not. Ask the Holy Spirit now as we close to put those upon your heart who need this. It might be a mother or father or brother or sister or neighbor or colleague. But Jesus has come in His first advent to be God with us and He offers His grace to those who desperately need it. And we know and we cannot hold it to ourselves. The light has shined and may the light of Jesus Christ shine through us. Our world is full of trouble. We are prone to deal with it in sinful ways. But Jesus came to dwell with us, to be Emmanuel, that we might be renewed to God and rest in His peace. May His Spirit confirm these words to our hearts. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take the Scriptures, take the Word. May our minds understand it. May our eyes be open to see it. May we, may we sense the troubles around us and the troubles within us and, and recognize our tendencies to deal with them in unhealthy, sinful ways. Forgive us, please, for justifying those sinful remedies. We confess that we often do that. We pray that you'd forgive us. 
We recognize that we'll never do that. We'll, we'll never stop trusting ourselves. We'll, we'll never stop justifying sinful remedies until we look to your Son, who is our wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, who is the everlasting Father, the leader of His people, who will bring peace through His reign. May we look to Him together and may we tell others. So, Father, let us feel what is true that this world is broken. But may we remember what you've done for us in Jesus and may we look forward to the day until it's all made new and let us persevere in faith together in Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Emmanuel.